Are you asking me, would I do it to teleport? Would I take the risk? Or are you asking me if I would fuse with a fly? Yeah, we all want to fuse with a fly. Yeah. No, I'm asking, I'm saying, let's say they've, they've developed a machine that is ostensibly safe, that can teleport you across the world in an instant, and a bunch of people are doing it. You disintegrate in one pod and integrate in the other. And uh, by all accounts, you are identical on the other side. of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Elliot Fly. And I'm Bailey Fly. And this week we discuss George Langelin's 1957 short story and David Cronenberg's 1986 film of the same name, The Fly. Here we are, James. We are uh, we are slowly becoming one with uh, the insect world, with each other. Jumped in a little teleporter pod. Before we know, we'll just be one mass of flesh, because mm. we, we got to understand the flesh better. Yeah, I'm excited to to get into this. I I will admit that body horror Cronenberg is something is a little bit of a blind spot for me. I had seen The Fly before, but this movie really made me, especially this viewing, made me want to go through his filmography now and really get into it because it's a it's a style, you know, yeah. it's like a notable style. I say this is a movie I've seen whenever people ask me about it, um, but watching it was one of those where I realized like I've probably seen a little bit of it here or there, but I. I had no memory of it as a complete film. You know what yeah. I mean? I watched it for Halloween a few years ago, and before that, it had been forever, basically the same as you. Cool. Yeah, and, and never read the story for sure, so that was my first time with that. But yeah, it kind of felt like a first-time viewing other than the fact that like I kind of knew some scenes and like how certain things looked. But um, it's a gross movie, man. Um, oh, it's disgusting and disturbing. Yeah. and it's it, Gruesome. I would yeah, call it gruesome. Absolutely. Uh, definitely hard to watch at times, but definitely like by design, like he's, he's going for that. Right. I mean, if you like the effects, like we, we, how many times have we talked about the thing and the effects and the practical Amazing effects? effects. And, yeah. In this podcast, we've talked about it many times. And I feel like if you love that kind of stuff, you're willing to take the jump, however grotesque it gets, you're willing to take the jump to see what that's like in this movie. Um, Some people just like body horror, man. Like, sure, I, yeah, I feel like, uh, it's, it's, a uh, Genre I have a lot of respect for. Sometimes I think it's fun to dabble in. Um, the true gross-out body horror, when that's like the main point of the story, it's never been my favorite. Um, just because I kind of get grossed out, and like I don't love that feeling of like, you know, like I feel like I'm gonna vomit. <laughs> um, which I felt a little bit of that during this film. Some people love that. You know what I mean? Like they 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 want to be challenged in the in that way. You know. I'm somewhere on the fence. Like this, this isn't the worst that I've seen. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I yeah, will say but that. It, I mean, sure, I'm, I'm sure there are much worse. But yeah, we, like you said, if it's body horror for the sake of body horror, I think that's a little different. This, this film kind of lulls you into false sense of security early on. The first half of this film is like feels like such a typical 80s romance film. Yeah. And then like if you had gone to see this with that with no context, I can only imagine how horrified that would make you. And uh, I wonder how it was marketed, you know, I'd be yeah. curious to see like an old trailer. for. I it. think it was pretty clear right away. Uh, that line. What was it? The uh, be afraid, be very afraid. That mm. that line that 
uh, Gina Davis character says um, that I've heard that a bunch of times. Is that? Yeah, that's the tagline for the film. And it's the and it's the first time, you know, that's in the zeitgeist. That's something that people say. Totally. And Is that from this? It's from this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, totally. That's like a you're going to see something really scary if, you, if someone says that. I think that's kind of the reputation that that has. I've seen maybe the movie twice, but more often I've seen clips from the movie. Yeah. And it has that that sort of reputation. And I don't know. I, nope. I don't see a lot of people bringing this movie out to talk about its legacy and horror that often. I think people just like Cronenberg is synonymous with body horror. Right. And so, of course, like the fly is brought up when Cronenberg is talked about. And I'm but curious I'll, to know where this falls in that reputation, like where he was building that reputation, where it comes from. I think this definitely was the that's this is the his highest grossing, most widely known to be Cronenberg. I think this is definitely the keystone of all of that. I don't see a lot of people bringing this movie out and saying like talking about it in the same way that I hear people talking about like the thing, but it kind of has that reputation and it definitely has that, that level of influence. And then Cronenberg, while many think of him as the body horror guy has gone on to direct tons of other stuff that's dramatic. And, and while he, he has a certain style and tone and, but a lot of filmmakers will tell you like his influence is there and, and it has been for a long time. Another reason why I want to go through his filmography and make sure I've seen everything is because tons of filmmakers that I respect talk about Cronenberg uh, in in a really high regard and, and how, you know, how he's possibly one of the better living filmmakers. And he's he's up to I believe he's in his 80s now. But even like, you know, a film that I often talk about that influenced me, Fellowship and, and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Peter Jackson was influenced and made a lot of horror style like like gruesome horror films before he went would make the lord of the rings and howard shore who scored the lord of the rings also scored this film i noticed <laughs> and like that that connection you know there's there's a reason that some of these people are overlapping and sim- similar kinds of styles and voices like i think this is a really fun one to dig into man i agree uh and i'm excited to get into it and we got to get the story first set the stage for it but uh Real quick, I just wanted to touch on NorwestCon. I was at over the weekend. Um, had a lot of fun. Was on a bunch of things. Um, I thought the panels went great. I had people come up and talk to me um, and, and you know say that they enjoyed it. In specific, uh, the horror there was like a horror sci-fi blend panel. And um, it, I thought it went great. And I think I even mentioned that we were going to be covering this on it. Um, and sure enough, you know, I was I was thinking about that while watching about how this, this totally is a horror sci-fi blend because the premise is science fiction. And the result is horror, right? Right. How did it relate to this project? Like, what what kinds of topics did you cover? Oh man, I mean, too much to get into, but sure. Just about the nature of like science and our fear of like progress and our and and like cautionary tales about what could happen, and um, of course, then you got like cosmic stuff, like about like the immensity of space, and you know, um, there's there's just so many interesting spots of fear that you could focus on and blend with horror. And, and I think it's, it's such a natural pairing. Um, it's, it's awesome. But anyway, I just want to say shout out to everybody who I met. I, there was a lot of people who I got to talk to, you know, I felt like I made a lot of new friends and uh, a lot of people said they were going to listen to the podcast. So if you're a new listener, thank you so much for checking us out. Also, man, I'd love to have you actually come to a con one of these days. It'd be super yeah. fun to, to do stuff together as the podcast. I always feel like I'm one half, you know, like, right. Yeah. yeah. My, my, my co-host is a filmmaker. <laughs> it would <laughs> be know? cool. We got to do something like, it'd be cool to meet somewhere that's not our cities and then right, yeah. go like, you know, somewhere totally. like Chicago. What's, what's or right somewhere. in the middle. <laughs> yeah. The uh, Midwest, I guess. Right. Yeah, Somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, all right, man. Um, if you're ready, I think we move into the short story. Cause uh, we got a little bit to touch on there. Um, I looked up uh, George Langland as an author who I didn't know anything about. 
Um, I wasn't able to find a lot. He's not like some huge figure. He's most known for this story. He does have other stuff he wrote. Um, but he has kind of a cool, interesting life from what I was able to see. He's a French-British writer, born in 1908, would die in 1972 at the age of 64. Um, from from what I could see, like this was either his first published short story or early on in his career for sure. Um, it's kind of an era where like maybe some stuff has been lost, so I don't know for sure. Um, but this was originally published in 1957 in Playboy magazine. Oh, wow. Um, which is cool. Well, you got to read it for the articles, right? That's what people tell me. And the short fiction, apparently. Yeah. Um, they totally still publish uh, fiction, by the way, sometimes. Really? And f- from what I understand, they pay very well. They're one of the best paying short fiction markets there is. That's cool. I, did, I didn't know. Curtis Chin, who's been on the podcast, has had a short story published in Playboy. Great. That's yeah. awesome. It's interesting to think about because I think there's like a griminess to some of the practices, but... At the same time, we've kind of gotten into like sex positive culture well, now. Hugh and... Hefner's gone now, and I think uh, some of it's gotten maybe a little better. But I don't. I certainly don't know. Yeah. So don't quote me on that. Sure. Yeah. But just my my you know very outsiders take from stuff I've heard heard is that they're trying to be a little more sec- like sex positive and like progressive in that way. Sure. The idea on paper is sex positive and f- publishing short fiction and and that that seems appealing to me. That's cool. There's always a chance of exploitativeness going on and anything, anything like that. So I certainly can't can't vouch for it. But, you know, getting paid well is nice as an author. And just because you have a sh- short story published in a magazine doesn't mean you like co-sign and everything yeah, that the organization does. So um, I think more power to you. I would totally take the money if I had the opportunity and the, you know, the readership. So Langolin worked as a spy in World War II. This is one of the most interesting things I could find about him for the Allied powers. Um so much, Thank so God he for actually, the Allied powers, right? Yeah. If you were like yeah. for the Axis, I'd be like, oh boy. Yeah. So he actually underwent plastic surgery to alter his appearance before being dropped into France. He had to like he had to like change his ears and all this stuff so that he wasn't as distinctive, I guess. He parachuted into France on September seventh of nineteen forty one, and then he uh, was captured on October sixth and was imprisoned in the Mozak camp, condemned to death by the Nazis and then escaped on July 16th of 1942. He then returned to England to participate in the Normandy landings. Wow. Incredible. (laughs) That's pretty wild, right? Decorated war hero, it sounds like. Um, Escaped from a Nazi prison, went back and fought in Normandy. That's uh, powerful stuff. That's all before this story, right? That's in the 40s. Um, I also read that he was the friend of occultist Aleister Crowley. Do you know anything about Aleister Crowley? I know the name. He's an infamous name. He's like the most famous occultist magician, probably of the you know the twentieth century. I know a little bit about him. I listened to like a, a podcast, kind of deep diving into his background. I didn't necessarily retain all of it, um, but I know that like he was very influential with a lot of f- famous figures, like JPL, like the rocket company. Um, a lot of the people who formed that company were good friends with him, and they would often like go to a lot of his parties and stuff. And he performed like sex magic and ritual magic and all kinds of shit. Um, and so there's a lot of ties to a lot of like powerful figures. He's not a Satanist, but he he definitely liked to play like he was, and he would like wear robes and do all these rituals and all this stuff. And he's a very controversial figure. He has a lot of famous writings that people still look into. Oh, uh, he. Now, I don't know. This is all, like, theorized, but he, um, L. Ron Hubbard and him, at, po- at one point, were friends. And people theorized that L. Ron Hubbard may have 
based a lot of his formations of Scientology off of Aleister Crowley because he saw Aleister Crowley um, basically start his own religion. Mm. Anyway, um, I don't know how close he was with George Langelin. I just saw this note that says like, oh, yeah, he was friends with Aleister Crowley. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, uh, that's interesting. It's interesting when you see people uh, career, have career changes like this, huh? Like a spy <laughs> into being a published short short fiction author. And yeah, I mean, you think of like uh, Christopher Lee, for example, is like told stories about being in World War II and played Saruman and Dracula and all kinds of other people. Yeah, totally. Um, Christopher Lee. Awesome, by the way. Yeah. I mean, like you said, most well known for The Fly. It was it was um, published in '57. The film that came out based off of it, starring um, Vincent Price, mm-hmm. came out in 1958. So one year later, the film came out. That's pretty amazing. That is amazing. Um, and it's Vincent Price who we've covered before, and you know, kind of horror royalty. Yeah, and then obviously the 1986 film with Cronenberg is very famous and influential. Um, apparently, there was also a 2008 opera. Of the same name. Oh, I heard about this. Yeah. Directed by Cronenberg and composed by Howard Shore. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's cool. So we might have to circle back to that. But yeah, that's what I could find about George Langlin. Interesting guy. Uh, Clearly this decorated war hero. What did you think of the story, man? Interesting to think about someone who changed their physical appearance and is kind of contemplating this kind of stuff. Yeah. Bodies changing in ways and, you know. Anyway, the short story surprised me. It was, you know, it's brief, but it has it has good impact. I mean, there are things that felt very 50s about it to me, but... Totally. Some of the gender attitudes, you sure. know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. There's something very distinct about horror. These kind of... There's these horror premises from 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Something about them feel timeless, and they, they, just, they just sound like... You tell me on paper de-atomizer or something what was it like what was the mechanism that he was using was like a retransmitter detransmitter kind of thing something like that anyway he has this idea for this piece of technology and a lot of horror stories from that time period felt like that it's like just on paper this is what it's about it's entire it sounds enticing people are interested in reading it right away and then the the places that it goes for whatever reason especially maybe it's just how widely how widespread some of these short stories were at the time but the influence just continues to go and go. And uh, this this was definitely the case. It reminded me of some other uh, short fiction that was horror. Ooh, do you have a specific? Because I have a specific one. I Am Legend was one of them that came to mind. Uh, Matheson. Would have been writing around the same time as this, actually. Matheson would be. Yeah. What was the what was the one that the thing was based? Who Goes There? Who Goes There, yeah. Yeah, John W. Campbell. Good premise on paper. Probably, what, 30s to 50s range? I think it was 30s, yeah. Yeah. And the way that the story just seems like it's revolutionary for the time. Like, it always feels Mm. like it's something new that hadn't been written about before. Um, And and then just to see the foresight of some of these thinkers, like, seeing, like, they they would think about, okay, here's teleportation, but then what if teleportation also involved, like, gene splicing or something like that? Like, that seems like it's kind of cutting edge for the 50s. I absolutely think it was. Uh, Totally. Uh, So the author I kept thinking of was H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. Um, who who we covered recently for Cabinet of Curiosities. I thought this story read Lovecraftian in the sense that one of the characters, like the, the main witness is deemed mad okay, yeah. by everyone. I can kind of see that. And the whole like conceit of the story is moving towards the reveal. And I have the reveal. I'm going to read it in a little bit. But like 
it felt like everything was building to the moment of horror. And so much time was spent on her reaction, Helen's, I think Helen or Helene, uh, her reaction to what she's seeing felt very Lovecraftian to me. It's also that that someone's sort of telling the story in hindsight, that framing device. Yeah, totally. Well, because we start with, uh, I guess we'll give, we'll go ahead and spoil it. You know, if you want to read it, I think it's worth checking out if this sounds cool to you, but we're going to spoil it. Um, it starts off with this, uh, the main character getting a call saying that his brother, or no, he gets a call from Hel- Helen saying, I killed your brother. <laughs> um, and she's acting very strangely. And he comes to find out that his brother has been like crushed in this like steam hammer machine of some yeah. kind that has crushed his head and arm. And um, his wife is the one who like killed him. But no one believes her and they think she's mad. Um, and then she's like catching flies and stuff. And we keep hearing about this one big fly that um, the, the the nephew has seen at one point. He's like, oh, it's the big large fly it was in your study it has a white head. Um, and they keep kind of being dismissive of that. And then there's like a cop character who's investigating all of this and he's talking to the main character. But they're all so dismissive of her and like what she saw and they're like oh she's just a woman she doesn't know what she's talking about you know (laughs) there's kind of that attitude although it felt a little bit i don't know if maybe that's just me being kind of giving the benefit of the doubt but it felt like he was trying to be critical of that point of view like they were being foolish men by not believing her okay yeah i I think there was a little bit of that like it wasn't like he was saying like yeah they're right he was like yeah they're kind of being idiots by not listening to her yeah she also was withholding information a lot she was totally yeah they would they would ask her certain like they would get to the root of the story and she'd be like i can't answer that well so much of this story was about like knowledge itself was the was the enemy and she was afraid and it was it was his brother's wish that this this technology doesn't get shared and the, the the story even ends after we get the reveal where she talks about how the whole thing that happens with the brother and how he you know tried to transport himself after experiments with a cat that got completely deatomized and never never came back uh, their own cat and then he also like did his cocker spaniel like twelve times and that seemed fine um, so he was like I guess I can try myself now um, but uh, yeah he gets to fly it's the same as the movie right he gets spliced with a fly. Um, and instead of uh, a slow transformation, it's kind of immediate. He comes out as like this hybrid fly with like a fly head and like a fly arm, but he's covering it with like a blanket. And that's what I was saying. Like so much of it is like building to this reveal, right? Because he's got it. He's got it covered and it, like the blanket literally falls off. He's communicating like through typed letters that are slid under the door. And well, and then tapping. Tapping. Yeah. Yeah. Because he like can't talk. Um, and he ends up saying like he wants her to kill him and destroy all evidence of this experiment. And I was thinking about how this is like a post World War II story in the sense of like I think there was a lot of like what have we wrought with the invention of the atom bomb? Yeah, I can um, see that. And yeah. I think there was a little bit of an attitude of like, ooh, maybe science is going too far. We better kind of pump the brakes on this. Um, and so that was kind of the attitude I was getting with the like desire to hide everything. Um, But let me read that reveal moment because I think that this is like an interesting bit of writing. Until I am totally extinct, nothing can, nothing will ever make me forget that dreadful white hairy head with its low flat skull and its two pinned ears. Pink and moist, the nose was also that of a cat, a huge cat. But the eyes, or rather where the eyes should have been, were two brown bumps the size of saucers. Instead of a mouth, animal or human, was a long, hairy, vertical slit from which hung a black, quivering trunk 
that widened at the end, trumpet-like, and from which saliva kept dripping. So that, to me, felt like kind of a Lovecraftian reveal, right? Is it's, it's almost like a horror beyond imagining, and we start out by kind of saying, like, I'll never forget this. It's seared into my mind and, you know, all that. Uh, yeah, I totally see it. And like like I mentioned that the idea of someone telling you the facts after afterwards and they're like this story that's kind of gone, it's over and removed now, but I'm telling and you. And then she kills herself after after writing this letter. So there's there's that element too of like it's like a it's like a knowledge it's too horrific to to live with. Yeah, I had a fun time with this story. It to me it feels very classic. I like the construction um and the sort of uh the structure of the story I thought was interesting. The idea of having it lead off with this murder and then it being truthfully a mystery as we're trying to find out why this occurred, why Helen killed her, killed her husband, why she's behaving she, the way she's behaving, why she's trying to catch flies, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we get the reveal, we get the horror of the reveal, but then we also get the solution to the mystery of why and then, and then it ends on the the decision to sort of cover up the knowledge. It's a cool, it's a cool structure for a story, I think, and I kind of appreciate it for that reason too. Yeah, I had a good time with it. It was like I was entertaining the whole way through. I think that there was like the cop element was interesting because it, it gives like somebody else to be kind of looking into the issue. But really, it's about it's about the the events that unfold and from from the wife's perspective and the way that she's telling it in the note and she leaves a note there at the end. Uh, for him to like fully understand it, uh, yeah, it's I like the way it played out, and because she's in a, like a lunatic asylum as she calls it, um, where she's being everybody thinks she's lost her mind, and that you know she's trying to catch these flies, and that's a you know clear sign that she's lost her mind. But we li- we learned that that was like the one thing that her husband thought maybe he could reintegrate if he had the fly. So that's something that's not in the movie. In the story, there's like the human fly hybrid but then there's also the fly human hybrid that's what i was going to say that the white head is definitely just like a human human body parts on a fly right many human body parts and something yeah and we end with that sort of horrific idea even though it doesn't really get super into it but it talks about the the, the head being so white that's like the end of the like the last line of the story yeah well and and like him killing it is that like that we're worried about like where the consciousness is right like is it there is is the fly also partially human conscious and like is killing it a mercy that that he provides or you know Well it seemed to know him right it came to his study so there's some sort of hint of a human intelligence which I is I think in this story spooky. is a little dark because of the fact that they mentioned like if he unsplices it by having the fly come back in, he can return to normal. And like by like I know he was crushed by a hammer and clearly dead, but like maybe there's a possibility that you could untie those genes in some way and bring him back. But no, there's that you kill him and end it. And- well, and his wife basically caused it because she she told the nephew to like because he had caught the fly and he's like no she's like no no release the fly, you know. So there's some other like sort of interpersonal stuff going on here with like believing, you know, people and, and I don't know, again, there was some dated gender stuff going on. I even wrote down one, one line from, uh, from Mr. Fly himself where he says, I deeply admire your delicious feminine logic. (laughs) Yeah. That, uh, that doesn't sound great. (laughs) What? What does that even mean? Um, he wants a bowl laced of milk laced with rum. To, sl- to slurp on was well, and she didn't question it either she's like got it she's like let me get that oh. bowl of rum for you and that's the other thing she wants him to go through the teleporter one last time and he agrees to do it and when he goes through the second time he comes out partially mixed with the cat as well yeah 
So he's part cat in that description that I read talks about the sort of cat um, features. If you're wondering why that's in there, he's part cat, part fly, part human at that point. And that's when he's like, now it's too far gone. Kill me. But again, it's like kind of blamed. He kind of blames her for it. You know what I mean? Like there was some weird blame being assigned. One of the parts that stands out to me is when he like, it's really interesting because like he he is so serious about getting rid of the evidence. And then when she crushes him, she just crushes his head and his arms, his fly arm is still out. And she has to like open it up, put his arm back in and smash him again. There's some squelching and blood and stuff. I thought it was, you know, I honestly thought the story was pretty bloody and sort of gruesome at times. But in the, in the same way that like Lovecraft is, like it's just a hint of it here or there, and then mostly it's just kind of like people discussing the ideas and like a, a two guys talking about what they've se- what someone else has seen, kind of thing. That felt very Lovecraftian to me. Um, so it's not like it doesn't relish in that stuff, but like that, I think that's why this story got published in like a Playboy, right? Because it it almost deals with like taboo subjects, and so it probably felt appropriate for that kind of magazine. Anyway, I, I think we got to move on to the movie, man. There's a lot with this Cronenberg film that I want to talk about, but it's cool to have that sort of basis. And I would love to eventually watch the 58 version. I think Me it's too. a bonus episode on our Patreon. Yeah, I definitely would as well. There's also a, The Fly too. I heard that. <laughs> um, so the film stars Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and John Getz. And it's loosely based off the short story we were just talking about. Um, I already mentioned composed by Howard Shore, but also the effects were done by Chris Wallace. And actually, Chris Wallace is who directed The Fly 2. Okay. So, you know, the head of the effects guy, the effects in this film uh, goes on to do the sequel. So, again, I think that's worth possibly pursuing in the future as well. Um, So the film released a massive acclaim by critics and audiences, um, mainly praising the special effects and Goldblum's performance. It grossed $60 million at the box office against its $9 million budget, becoming the largest commercial success for Cronenberg's career. Wallace's work on the film resulted in uh, winning the Academy Award for Best Makeup that year. So overall thoughts here, I think we've talked about it a little bit in our general thoughts, but like, you know, did have you seen Cronenberg in the past? Did this live up to what you were expecting and what you remembered? I think I've seen Cronenberg. I, I honestly, like, I'm waiting for you to tell me what movies he's made because I, I suspect I've seen some of his movies that, aren't as well known for being body horror. Some of the bigger ones, Shivers, Scanners, Videodrome. I've heard of Videodrome. I think that one's a short story that we could I think it is too, yeah. History of Violence. I have seen History of Violence, yep. That was one of the ones that, again, that's not body horror, Cronenberg. But it's got some some brutal scenes in it. Oh, it's dark, yeah, Yeah. definitely. Definitely some gore in that one. Um, Yeah, so I've seen some stuff. Uh, I know he's had a lot of stuff that's been coming out lately too, right? Like he's had this kind of resurgence. So he made a film called Crimes of the Future in the 70s. And then just last year, he dropped another film called Crimes of the Future. But it's not a sequel or a remake, anything like that. But it's like rehashing some. It's getting back into some of the topics that that other film got into. So it's interesting that he named it the exact same thing. But uh, I haven't seen that newer one. But Vigo Vigo Mortensen's in it, which he was also in A History of Violence. Uh, I was going to ask you if you'd seen it. That movie looked fucking wild from the trailer. Yeah. Haven't seen it. It yeah. <laughs> looks wild. Um, yeah. So this one, um, it, yeah, it's. Uh, I think I, I think I liked it. It's it's well made. It's got great effects. Um, it do, it almost feels like a maybe just because I'm so steeped in like superhero stuff nowadays, but it almost felt like they were playing with like the superhero idea. I can see it. Yeah, totally. You know, Goldblum gets kind of superpowers for a little bit um, before it all goes wrong. Goldblum is, you know, young and, and interesting. He's doing a lot of his, like, stuff he would go on to become famous for. But I could see how it was probably more novel at the time. But just, like, the way he talks and delivers yeah, lines. his mannerisms, and, yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because he's trying to play this like eccentric nerd, and yet he's clearly got like kind of a suave, like ladies' man attitude too. I don't know. I feel like Goldblum is both things at the same time. He is like this eccentric nerd that also is suave and ladies' man. I I think you're right, and that's why I think he does work work well for this role. Of course, there's a lot of stuff that didn't age well. Boy, the relationship with the boss was troubling. Um, More than that, yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> it was really bad. I fucking hated the boss. He's yeah. awful. They try to like you know, redeem him near the end, and I'm like, way too too little, man. I couldn't believe he like kind of saves the day at the end. I was so mad. Um, I was like, don't fucking make me like be happy for anything about this guy. I hate him. Um, and then also just like, oh man, like I like Gina Davis, okay, but like the way she did like failed to like tell this guy off fully was also frustrating to me she they she had like just enough agency to tell him to fuck off but then like would deal with him and maybe that's something that's being said like like, fuck off and he'd be like nah i'm not gonna fuck off and she'd be like okay (laughs) oh you're you're incorrigible okay you know yeah it might have something to do with like power dynamics at the time too though you know like she's he's her boss and you know well yeah and that's like difficult to navigate and that she's like keeps going back to him to be like, all right, now I'm going to talk to you like my boss, even though you were just creeping in my fucking house without your permission and like, all, you know, all kinds of wild shit that guy was doing. He's a really pathetic character. Uh, like Absolutely. He, I was happy when he got his fucking yeah. f- hand, hand melted. His comeuppance. We can, <laughs> that we'll was say. so gross, man. That was the other thing. So like the movie, it goes for gross outs, right? Like it, it, I mean, the squirting of the like pus or whatever out of the fingertip. Like it's go- it wants you to feel grossed out when we see when he makes the little museum of his body parts. Um, I I know we're kind of hopping around to different scenes here. I don't know how we want to how we want to handle uh, plot synopsis, but yeah, the, it 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 goes for grossed out. It sounds and, like it sounds to me that you're somewhere in between enjoying it and being too grossed out to enjoy it. I was impressed with what I was seeing, right, and what they were able to achieve. The ideas were cool. The gross out element is not something that I find personally that I love like I'm not going to be like wanting to go back and watch this movie and in fact I don't want to watch it again because it's so gross that was another point that I was going to make about people bringing out horror films that they're like oh I love watching this one I watch this one all the time the fly isn't one that I hear a lot of people saying like this is my comfort movie this is my comfort horror movie that I watch people just don't because it's it's (laughs) off-putting it's not it's not (laughs) made to be like some some fun horror romp it's like it's disgusting and and it's difficult to watch and the ideas are are like horror like it really is is one of those you know body horror is kind of a term that's thrown around a lot now but like the idea of having to go through something like this and i've seen a lot of people and cronenberg himself talked about how like this represents like aging and sickness and and how that can how you can be going through that and and you can imagine for the time many people saw this as as uh, commentary on AIDS and like liked that commentary like was was willing to because because of how when someone's going through this they're like otherized and they're seen as pitied and then all, they're also well like, and this movie is very sexual like the sexual relationship is sort of essential and and Cronenberg has come out and said like he didn't make it to be AIDS necessarily but he yeah. likes the reading if people want to take it that way I can see it I, and yeah like just the way that like you're treated when you're going through something like this like I said pitied but then also at the same time you're like people people don't want to come near you and and they they like are worried they're going to catch something there's there there's that going on in this film and there was a there is an implication at one point because he says like I might be contagious but like that doesn't obviously prove to be true as far as we can right. tell no, um, no he's not contagious 
And, and so it's just like a character that's going through like something gruesome and, and you know. Totally. So, yeah, I think I have like, like, I have a lot of respect for the movie. It feels like an important film as far as like the history of horror. Um, I, I just don't know that it's like one that I'm going to say is in my top, you know, top list. Um, but, I, you know, it's it's a pretty good story, you know, and, and uh, I had a pretty good time watching it. Yeah. How about you, man? How do you feel about it? I actually really like this movie for the reason that I said earlier. And it's it it's so unassuming in the beginning. It feel and it feels like a genuine 80s love story. Not like it's not really, really cornball. Like now, 80s romance films tended to be like kind of not realistic. And so it does feel like that. But at the same time, it, it feels in the same vein of like a When Harry Met Sally or something like that, where like they're they're kind of oddball characters they fall deeply in love very quickly and like they're you know they found each other there's like maybe some some bumps in the road they have to overcome and then but just as it goes on she's like fascinated by him he's totally head over heels for her and like i liked a lot of that his, because his, I, fucking, his jealousy is what gets him man yeah now and and i also like that like the flip of the character like he turns into a detestable character very quickly yeah. Um, and, and so like, there's a lot of that, that I liked about it because if you, if you think of it as a, the first time viewer, you're going in, you don't know what to expect. You get kind of lulled into this, oh, you know, something horrible is going to happen at some point, but so far it doesn't seem like it's going to be that, that drastic or anything. Yeah. Starts... You can know something horrible is coming and not see how this movie is going to progress for yeah. sure. And so, and, and I actually did like it. I, and gore and body horror in that isn't necessarily the thing I go to the theater for to see a horror film. Like I, I, I need more than that. But if it's going to be like this, it's at least something to walk out and talk about. Like, you know what I mean? You're talking yeah. about someone's hand melting off and there's some nasty Insane stuff. scenes. <laughs> and so, uh, one of the things I wanted to note, too, is bladder effects were really popular to pull, pull off special effects. So that's basically like building an effect around like an inflatable air bladder that can like move and seem like it's articulating or, or inhaling and things like that. Wallace set out to, to say, I'm not doing the bladder thing anymore because people have seen that before. And so a lot of these effects were like innovating and using new techniques and the way that like specifically to jump ahead quite a bit, the head sort of splits open and reveals this monster what underneath. What a moment, man. What a moment. That, that looks the way it does and it looks so unique because it is. Because, you know, people have emulated since, but that was the first time these some of these effects were being used. So, you know, really cool to note and the way that the Cronenberg really wanted to change it and i'll talk a little bit about that he the original film i've heard i haven't seen the original the fly but it's like a fly head on a body right that, i suspected as much yeah Yeah, not scientific seeming not realistic of well, what would blended happen in that way yeah, yeah not blended like, not yeah. like perfectly like a fly head and something so he wanted it to be like very like okay like if something was blended and the transformation was like it's not just like he comes out and he has a fly head if it was progressing throughout the film and so they had to go in and develop like different stages of the transformation and apply up to five pounds of prosthetics to Goldblum at any given time. And, you know, that performance is notable, too, because he's he's giving in the beginning really suave. Then he has this major flip to being, you know, detestable and horrible. And then he starts to really like get lesions and things on it. Like he gets like hairs growing out of his back and wounds. And then it starts to progress into like the full prosthetics. And. I can see why people at the time were like, oh, this deserved to be nominated. He, he wasn't nominated for this role. And, and I heard people saying that that was a snub because because of how much range is in this performance. Yeah. Monster flick horror is always going to have trouble getting yeah. awards noms. But especially hey. at that time period, you know, it's all right. It's, that's how you stay punk rock, you know. Sure. You stay out yeah. of the mainstream a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to have to talk about this, too, is like 
I didn't remember that there was like sort of an abortion through line that was being yeah. addressed. And at first yeah. I was like, oh, this seems progressive and like maybe pro-choice. And there's it seemed like she was saying like my body, my choice, and she was going to do it. And then like that's kind of ripped away from the character by him busting through a wall and literally taking her out of the clinic. I, at first, I felt like I was going to give it some props for that, but, you know, it's kind of a messy situation. And I think it's just more complicated. Yeah, Cronenberg is known for touching on, like, really controversial uh, topics, and, and I think even in the films that aren't body horror and, like, gory, have a lot of, like, controversial... He's a controversial filmmaker. Yeah, and that scene, I, I could see uh, totally being that, right? It's going to spur some discussions. The b- dream sequence, too, the, the birthing scene. Yeah, um, she um, gives birth to a maggot. Like yeah, a giant maggot. Disgusting. And like, you know, she has to, Gina Davis has to play that, you know, yeah. she has to act that out. But uh, so, you know, we've talked a lot of specifics, but let's talk about the filmmaker and then we can really dig in chronologically. David Paul Cronenberg is a Canadian film director, screenwriter and actor. He is a principal originator of the genre commonly known as body horror with his films exploring visceral body transformations, infectious diseases and the intertwining of the psychological, the physical and the technological. Cronenberg is best known for exploring these themes through sci-fi horror films such as Shivers, Scanners, Videodrome, and The Fly, though he has also directed dramas, psychological thrillers, and gangster films. Cronenberg's films have polarized critics and audiences alike. He has earned critical acclaim and has sparked controversy for his depictions of gore and violence. His films have won numerous awards, including the Special Jury Prize for Crash at the 1996 Cannes Film Festival. A lot of people talk highly of, uh, speak highly of Crash. That's one that yeah. I've heard a lot of people. Yeah, talk and about. it's not the crash that uh, that most people think of when they hear right. that. There's another crash that was yeah. like I it's think it's about it won... people who are like sexually turned on by car accidents, right? And getting injured in them. Yeah, and which there's is very a, <laughs> and I think there's another one that won Best Picture at the Oscars. It's not that one. Not that one. The Special Jury Prize was a unique award that is distinct from the Jury Prize, as it is not given annually, but only at the request of the official jury, who in this case gave the award for originality, for daring, and for audacity. From the 2000s to the 2020s, Cronenberg collaborated on several films with Viggo Mortensen, including A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, A Dangerous Method, and Crimes of the Future. Oh, I've seen Eastern Promises, too. That's a good movie. Six of his films were selected to compete for the Palme d'Or, the most recent being Crimes of the Future, which was screened at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival. So getting into the production of this film, how does this come about? Who is responsible for getting another adaptation made? Because this is basically a remake at this point, you know. Like we said, the original adaptation was a year after. It was in the 50s and then in the early... I assume it's very close to the story, but again, I haven't seen it, so I'll be curious to see. But to we will out. at some point. You know, I think that's pretty pretty ripe to be uh, a bonus episode. So in the early 1980s, co-producer Kip Oman approached screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue with the idea of remaking the classic science fiction horror film, The Fly. Deciding that this was a project in which he was interested, he talked with the producer, Stuart Cornfield about setting up the production, and Cornfield very quickly agreed. The duo then pitched the idea to executives at 20th Century Fox and received an enthusiastic response. Pogue was given money to write a first draft screenplay. He, in- he initially wrote an outline similar to that of Langland's story, but both he and Cornfield thought that it would be better to rework the material to focus on a gradual metamorphosis instead of an instantaneous monster. However, when executives read the script, they were so unimpressed that they immediately withdrew from the project. After some negotiation, Kornfeld orchestrated a deal whereby Fox would agree to distribute the film if he could set up financing through another source. Now, this is a, this is a cool fa- little trivia fact for you. The new producer was Mel Brooks. 
The film was to be produced by his company, Brooks Films. Cornfield was a frequent collaborator and friend of Brooks. Together, they had produced David Lynch's film, The Elephant Man. Brooks would leave his name off the film's credits to avoid confusing viewers who might expect, in quotes, Mel Brooks' film to be a comedy. Cornfield gave the script to Brooks, who liked it but felt that a different writer was needed. At the same time, Brooks and Kornfeld were trying to find a suitable director. Their first choice was David Cronenberg, but he was working on Total Recall, so he was unable to accept. Uh, interesting. So, wait, but that was a Verhoeven film. Right. There was, he, he was the original, right? He was working on it, yeah. Kornfeld then heard that Cronenberg was no longer associated with Total Recall and reapproached him to play The Fly. I remember when we were covering it now that you talked about how he was like written, like there were still some holdovers of... Like his his touch on that movie, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. He kind of walked away. I'm not sure. I don't remember the specifics on why, but yeah, we might have know, touched he, about it on our episode. But it's been a while. I'm sure, yeah. So, but Total Recall to the Fly. It's cool to see that connected tissue for the podcast. Um, yeah, and then Cronenberg agreed to sign on as director um, as long as he was allowed to rewrite the script. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Pogue's draft so that we can see sort of what he changed from the original work and then how Cronenberg wanted to shift that into his vision once he rewrote it. So this is some of Pogue's original draft before Cronenberg came on board. Jeff and Barbara Powell are a happily married couple. Jeff, a brilliant scientist, has been working on a teleportation machine, but is unwilling to tell his employer, Philip DeWitt, or his friend, Charles. Harry Chandler about the nature of the project. DeWitt is greatly displeased by this and threatens to pull his funding of the mysterious project unless he is given full discourse. Things play out kind of similarly. He, you know, experiments and similarly to the original story, experiments with it and then realizes he should go through himself. He goes through himself and then the fly gets in there. As he slowly mutates into a giant fly, he loses body parts and becomes able to climb walls, as well as digest food with corrosive vomit. So a lot of these details we see making yeah. it to Cronenberg's version. But Barb is horrified to learn that she is pregnant by Jeff and cannot be sure if the child was conceived before or after his teleportation. Eventually, Chandler discovers the teleporter's existence, reveals it to DeWitt, and demonstrates it on a cat, only to have the lost monkey atoms returned from the ether and create a horrible monkey-cat creature. So or, when he was experimenting, he was using monkeys, right? Yeah. And it, it, rather than... So a monkey, monkey-cat hybrid is what we get rather than a human-fly-cat <laughs> hybrid. Um, so when that happens, DeWitt beats it to death with a metal rod. Despite this failed experiment, DeWitt sees the substantial monetary value of the device and so takes possession of the teleporter. Jeff learns of this and then goes to DeWitt's office building, followed by Barb. Jeff con confronts DeWitt, starts a fire in the lab where the teleporter is, and kills DeWitt by vomiting and feeding on him. He then traps himself in one of the teleportation devices, and Barb sees him burnt alive, basically. Uh, in a coma, Barb dreams of giving birth to a giant maggot, only to wake up in a hospital where it's revealed that she had given birth to a healthy baby boy. Wow, there's yeah. a lot of holdovers there. So that's his version of the of the script. And then let's get into Cronenberg and why he changed certain things. And because and, I guess when he got on board, his main thing was that it wasn't going far enough. <laughs> you know, some of the horror <laughs> he needed more yeah. of. Uh, yeah. Cronenberg rewrote the characters and most of the dialogue from scratch. Uh, he fused some of the characters together. You know, he, he made DeWitt and Chandler into Stathis Borens, which is like our kind of third. There's really only three characters in this story. Um, really? Yeah, for the most part. Which is notable, uh, and and it's funny because Cronenberg... Eventually, there's, the, there's the, other, the second woman, but yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that there's this um, opera version of this, and, and Cronenberg noted, he's like, he's like, honestly, when you think about it, theatrically, it's like three characters in one location, and it works really well for like a stage a stage play version of it. So interesting to, to note there. So yeah, he rewrote all the dialogue, 
he carried over a few key key moments and concepts. Certain aspects of the transformation from Pogue's draft were expanded upon in terms of like losing body parts and that kind of thing. Cronenberg also layered in his tra- trademark themes of sexuality, body horror, and personal identity. He also made it a point to keep um, Seth as articulate as possible for as long as possible, as opposed to Pogue's draft where he loses his ability to speak like kind of earlier on. You want to give the actor an opportunity to shine with performance. And if you take away their ability to talk, it's going to be hard for that. Yeah. Seth's increasing mania and personality changes in the early stage of the transformation were emphasized in the rewrites and the notion of the transformation itself being a horrible and very metaphorical disease became a key factor in the new script. Also in this version, Brundle was clearly transforming into a bizarre hybrid creature as the result of genetic fusion, whereas Pogue's version, similarly to the original story, was a lot of fly imagery, you know, giant fly, basically. Uh, Cronenberg's version also retained uh, such moments as him catching the fly, the fingernail pulling, and the maggot baby dream. So, yeah, I just wanted to highlight some of those major things. And the reason I wanted to is when push came to shove, the Writers Guild wanted to have Cronenberg on as the screenplay writer, the person who developed the script and wrote the script. But he pushed for Pogue to share screenplay credit because he said that his version could not have come to pass without Pogue's script to serve as a foundation. So good for him. Something really cool that I wanted to note, like, you know, he clearly could have easily taken the credit himself, but to see him to sort of stand by somebody who helped develop this movie into what it is and, and it's as influential based on Pogue's influence as well. Uh, with the script in place, Cronenberg assembled his usual crew. John Malkovich was the top top pick for Seth. Uh, John Lithgow was also <laughs> offered the role, but he turned it down, stating it was too grotesque. Interesting. Michael Keaton and Richard Dreyfuss were also considered, but ultimately Jeff Goldblum was picked, and Gina Davis was his girlfriend at the time, and he, you know, was able to get her an audition. Oh, and funny. She, yeah, and she was able to wow them in her audition, so it kind of worked out that both of them came together. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, Chris Wallace, who who had designed the creatures in Gremlins, the person I've been talking about, the special oh, effect. Oh, I could see that, yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about like, the process that they went through to get these special effects, because this is award-winning makeup, right? Like, this won mm-hmm. the Academy Award. Clearly, it holds up even today. Uh, it looks grotesque. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Intentionally. But uh, they designed and executed them in three months, which seems to me like a really incredibly short period of time. But uh, the final Brundlefly creature was designed first. And then the various steps that they needed to get to that point, they sort of scaled back from there. So they developed the last one and then worked it back towards normal Jeff Goldblum. Smart way of doing it. Yeah. And then that hybrid creature literally bursting out of him, that deteriorated skin. And I've heard some interesting... Like if you look really closely at the effects when when he's getting close to that bursting scene, you can actually see like on the back of his head, like the bulging of the eyes that would be there and some of the other stuff that's wow. like underneath the surface there. It's really disgusting and, and awesome yeah. that they were willing to to create that. What a moment, man. <sighs> yeah, it's it's stomach turning, but like what an incredible effect. It looks so good. It looks incredible. I mean, it's like it's one of those things that I'm so in awe of artists who can do this kind of thing because people talk a lot about like Hollywood magic and smoke and mirrors and all this stuff like they they did it and it looks real in camera. So like from the perspective, if your eyes were the camera, it would look as real to you as if it was actually happening. So, you know, there were puppeteers involved. There were, uh, you know, tons of special effects makeup. But another thing to note is Wallace was the one who did the Raiders of the Lost Ark melting of the head, the Nazi head. <laughs> it looked like the hand. That, that, it's very similar. Yeah, and so the hand, it's the same effect. What they okay, do is totally. they build like a stub like that. Like they build the end product and then build up a head or build up an arm around it. And then they put like hot 
lights and and heaters and things near it and they just have it melt and it's played back at faster speeds and stuff so it's really cool how that like that effect plays out and it's so disgusting i think you know the melting of the hand is disgusting but i think it's made more disgusting by the fact that he's it's the vomit which is like totally yeah it's like milk i read that it's like milk and eggs and something else all mixed together and it's like it looks like it looks fucking disgusting gross and then like that's not enough he then also gets his fucking leg he's just like let me get that leg too (laughs) yeah yeah he's about to like eat his head he's about to spit on his head yeah but yeah i actually kind of thought there was going to be a moment where he like drags him into the into the teleporter and because they had mentioned the computer mentioned if he brought like a perfect human in with him it could reform I thought that was the plan, but then no, he has like an even more insane plan of like, we're just going to all form like you, me and Gina Davis and the baby and fly are all going to become one being is what he wants. Oh my <laughs> at God. That so bad. Some of the philosophical conversations that happen as he's transforming are interesting, right? He has the really famous one about politics, right? He's talking about like, oh yeah. And no insect. Po- I want to be the first insect politician. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, people have re- obviously like taken that and run with it and been like all politicians are insects. And, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> those jokes have been there. Like, I think I want to say there's like an SNL skit about it or something. Yeah. I, I, some of those conversations that he has about like losing himself and what it means to be human and what is he and, and the way that like he's like mad science scientisting this whole thing. He's like, I am something new. I'm something that deserves multiple Nobel Prizes, even if yeah. it didn't work out correctly. I should get two. So a couple of things I want to touch on here. Uh, One is I kept thinking about uh, Frankenstein, specifically the James Whale version we covered. Yeah. Um, And uh, because he's like up in this tower. I didn't realize until we see the scene where he goes up the stairs how high up he was. It was very like kind of out of the way, kind of industrial and um, a lot of chains and like rolling. Like it's, I don't know. It's, it, it had a f- sort of Dr. Frankenstein vibe where he's doing these mad exper- experiments. And think about Frankenstein is also body horror, right? In, in a very early form. How could you not reach for this reference too, though, yeah. right? Like, so I'm not crazy. You you saw that too? Totally, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're a horror director, you have to be drawing on your influences like early horror. You just have to be. You know, I think it's, it's notable too that like not only is Cronenberg pulling from that original work but the the adaptation right like i haven't seen the adaptation but you have to assume that he's looking at that and either reacting to it or or like you know being influenced and maybe stealing a little bit from we don't call it stealing though right no it's all part of the adaptation process (laughs) um okay so the other thing i I think we got to talk about now is the teleporter paradox um this actually came up at norwestcon i was sitting with a couple other sci-fi writers and we were all talking about the teleporter paradox and cloning and like all kinds of different stuff and so it's so funny to me i hadn't watched this movie yet until i got home and then of course i knew that like teleporter was important for the fly but like sure. just how front and center it was so the teleporter paradox is essentially i i read that like it was first really discussed um in this like 80s era science fiction writer but he was also referencing something from the 50s what was more of a philosophical argument um, but it's sort of like the teleportation element of it was really brought to the fore there. And the idea is like if you had a device that y- you stepped into it and it put you to sleep, basically killed you, and then elsewhere r- takes a bunch of atoms and forms an exact replica of your body down to the exact relative positions of every atom. Um, and that formation of you comes out the other side with your memories everything else and you have now teleported into that teleporter um is the being that steps out of the teleporter you or did you die 
and that is a replica of you. Going to sleep and dying is one thing, but like I, it's legitimately tearing you apart atom by atom to analyze each one and then exactly replicating it in another one. And that's that's a good question. Like, there's a couple of ways to approach this, right? Are you a spiritual? Would you do it? Are you a yeah? Would you do it? <laughs> would I will you do add, it? Yeah, we should address that at some point. <laughs> we just talked about that last week, but let's revisit. Would you do it in a second? Yeah. So you okay. can approach this in a spiritual way. Mm-hmm. Or you can approach it in a scientific way. And I think if you're approaching it in a scientific way, it's a clone. It's not you. You're dead. And like maybe you live on in that way. And if you're okay with that, if that is like, it, let me let me understand why, though, consciousness, why yeah. do you think it's not you? Is it because of like the, the the it's not the same atoms or is it not you because continuity of consciousness or like what is the thing that I think it's the latter, right? I think yeah. it's when you our body cannot survive being ripped apart. It's not even physically being ripped apart. It's like. Well, I guess it depends if you're saying like, is this one specific atom being taken out of you and then sent through a tube to another area and appearing in another area? Or is it that it's like burning it to to, co- to, to get the information and then, and then recreating it in another location? Because our bodies can't physically survive that. Of course, if you break something down to atoms, like what is the difference between one atom of carbon and another atom of carbon? They are identical at the subatomic level, right? Sure. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if it's the one that was in you or not. No, but but like the consciousness thing is where because that kind of is what life is derived from. Right. So like you that gives us our humanity that gives us who we are. And so when someone dies and they're resuscitated or something like that, like if they don't if they no longer have that consciousness, I don't think that they're there anymore. Or if they spend time in a coma like I did at one point. Sure. When you wake up on the other side, are you still you? Good question. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I want to hope so, but I think so. Yeah. I don't know, man. And, and um, of course, you, people have brought up a lot of complications to this, like going to sleep at night. The fact that our bodies change over time and replace materials. It, what about the, the existence of a soul, too? Like it has to if sure. you believe in something like that, you yeah. know, I don't find that particularly interesting, but some people that's that's essential. Let's circle back to would you do it? Yeah. Would you do it? So are you asking me, would I do it to teleport? Would I take the risk? Or are you asking me if I would fuse with a fly? Yeah, we all want to fuse with a fly. Yeah. No, I'm asking, I'm saying, let's say they've they've developed a machine that is ostensibly safe that can teleport you across the world in an instant and a bunch of people are doing it. You disintegrate in one pod and integrate in the other. And uh, by all accounts, you are identical on the other side. I definitely think about it because I there's something that I that's something that I want so badly because I I, not that I dislike travel. It's the traveling that I dislike about it. You know, I want (laughs) to be able to go everywhere at all times Um, and like start like Star Trek. You're in Star Trek. Yeah, that's what they do. If you're beaming me up and like because that's what it is. They're disintegrating you and then reintegrating you somewhere else. And ultimately, I guess my answer is yes, but I'm not going to be the Jeff Goldblum guinea pig. I want to mm-hmm. be like the the millionth person to do it. I, I so my answer, I don't think so. Yeah, I I don't I don't know, man. I, it's it, to me, it gets to like we haven't covered the prestige. Yeah, there's a pretty heavy spoiler too. Yeah. Though. Okay. Okay. I don't know if you should mention it. All right, I won't mention that. But if you've seen the prestige, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Which one are you? In, in our teleporter t- paradox, are you the man who gets disintegrated or are you the man who steps out on the other side? Yeah. Well, I guess I need I need like other people to do it first to give me the accounts. And I know they're always going to say it's me. They're going to think they st- they're like, yeah, it's me. I yeah. stepped out on the other side. I'd be that weird character in Star Trek. I don't know if this has happened or not. It probably has. But like someone who like refuses to be- step yeah. on the teleporter. We were like, you're not beaming me up. Give me a ladder. Throw me a ladder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, okay, we can move on. It's it's a paradox for a reason, right? Like it's 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 much like time paradoxes. There's no answer to it. 
My um, answer is I would definitely contemplate it. Like, I, there's no question that I, because it's something that I've talked about a lot and thought about a lot. But it gets at the nature of existence and how, like, we don't really understand it, I think is what is interesting to me about it. It's like, we don't really understand why we're people and why we have a continuity of personhood that we like to believe in, a continuity of self, you know, and like why I think I'm the same person that I was when I was 20 years old, even though I'm clearly not the same person, but there's this continuity that connects us where I feel like we're the same person. Yeah. I mean, it, it really gets complicated too because you're basically saying that you live in a world where people, if if you're thinking, oh, you die and someone else comes out the other side that's an exact replica, then the idea of death becomes way less scary too. Like that changes like people, because if you can do that, you can borderline clone somebody. I mean, and we basically can't can clone people <laughs> and and this is the other thing like what if we get to the what if we were talking like an altered carbon situation where like yeah. not only are you like physically transported but then your consciousness is uploaded to something and then transferred yeah. to another you know what i mean like getting into the idea of like consciousness being converted into information yeah which essentially is what's happening it just then gets converted on the other side back into the physical matter yeah but at some point in the process is it's that getting you? analyzed and converted into information. And that's what this that's what this movie's about. So I think it's it's relevant. Um but yeah, I mean again, I don't think we can we can't find an answer. That's it's a paradox for a reason, but um it's it's I think it's interesting to think about and I feel like this movie only partially gets into it. It's more interested in the like this this mishap that happens. Well, the gene splicing becomes like the most important. It's it's more about that. It's not even about teleporting. Whereas I when the first time he zaps, I'm like, well that was the death of Brundle. Yeah. And whatever comes out the other side, that's not him anymore. This gene splicing thing, too, is like, would you do that? If somebody if you if you could be like, I think that becomes the norm. Like if gene splicing becomes really, really massive or something and they can guarantee that you can get like eagle wings or something on your back that can support your weight. I mean, let's keep it realistic. I think what you actually could see is and this is research that's already being done is like finding ways to get like the regenerative power of like a lizard is able to regrow limbs. And I think this is like the plot of one of the Spider-Man films, but like this is legitimate research. It's like trying to figure out other, is there certain, you know, biological processes that other animals are really good at that we could use as people to have like regrow a lost limb. I mean, Spider-Man is relevant too, because the fl- like he's actually like climbing on walls and doing that yeah. whole effect too. Totally. So. This is kind of like a play on Spider-Man. It's like Fly Man. Isn't there a, also a superhero called the Fly? The Tick. There's, there's the tick. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's like a man spider. Like there's all kinds of like hybrid crazy shit that happens. Speaking of, I, I, I don't know that we're going to do like a like a whole plot breakdown. So I'm going to kind of yeah. hop around a little bit. There's that scene where he's walking on the wall and I was thinking like they had to have built a set that's like makes a wall look like a floor. But then he even hops from that onto the, you know, onto the quote unquote floor. And so I'm like, are they rotating it like a like a Christopher uh, Nolan style set? Yeah. I mean, Christopher did? Nolan was not the first to do that. There's, It's been done many times, yeah. I'm amazed that they had the they budget to do something like that, to pull something like that yeah. off. That's so cool to do that practically. I feel like nowadays you just CGI or something, but like, yeah. it's so cool because you could tell that is a person. Yeah. You can also tell because of like his shirt, the way his shirt's hanging down, you can tell which way gravity is going, actually, even though the illusion That's is true. that he's upside down. <laughs> but uh, I also read like, you know, in order to f- to light something like that, uh, the the director of photography was using and the gaffer were using 
mirrors to like reflect it and to light it correctly. And I think that's cool. Take that dangly shirt off and then get rid of that problem. Right, right. <laughs> well, he does that plenty in this movie and his butt and his little undie pants and everything. That's true. Like, yeah. Sexual Good. icon, Jeff Goldblum. He really is. Yeah. This this <laughs> film was is very, very sexual. Um, it is. It ups the gross factor, I think, right? Yeah. Because you're like thinking about bodies and the way they come together and like being attracted to someone and then having them transform. It it makes it so much more intimate. And then the fact that she's sleeping with him throughout and she even sleeps with him after the transformation. Without realizing it, obviously, mm-hmm. but he's got like fly hairs growing out of his wounds and stuff. And yeah. It's, yeah. Definitely starts and then getting the pretty gross. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that too, like... She's she wants the abortion. She's like, you know, and then she she seeks it out. And, you know, I think it's like good that she's allowed to. (laughs) Well, I don't even know that she's allowed. It seems like he's pulling strings and stuff. Yeah. But But like you should be right. Sure. I think that's the point, too, is that like it's a it's a weird way of going about saying that there are circumstances where women should be able to choose. Right. Obviously, she's giving birth. She's like worried about giving birth to a maggot baby here. And then there's also there's kind of an uncomfortable like she's worried about like a disability and like, yeah, that's not great. The doctors and him, the way that they were, they were the way they were faking it and saying instead of saying maggot baby, they were basically just saying like deformed, possibly deformed. And yes. Yeah. That's not that's not great. But like the idea of like not wanting to give birth to someone's child, that's at at the heart of it. Right. Like in that, you know, I believe that should be a woman's right to choose that. And that horror of having to give birth to something that you consider monstrous, right? Like that, that is an essential, I think horror that a lot of women wrestle with. And to see that in this movie kind of out of the blue, like you're probably not expecting that going into here. He knew for a fact he was including a scene that was going to be all about abortion. He had to have known that. And that it was a taboo subject at the time. Controversial at least. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's pushing so many buttons, man. Like, he's just, he's he's hitting, like, he had, like, a little board of, like, all the buttons you can press in, like, your audience of disgust and fear and revulsion. And he's, like, just jamming his hand down in every button he can. Yeah, it's, like, how much of how much of these are, like, really deliberate choices versus him mashing buttons? Yeah, it's not as nuanced. It's, like, shocking, especially for that time period. Like, you're talking the 80s when yeah. it's, like, you know. Was he just doing it because, like, you know, shock jock kind of stuff, like, just to be the guy who goes there? I don't know. I don't know enough about Cronenberg. It seems, I mean, like Eastern, Pro- like, I've seen some like really thoughtful films, but later in his career. You exactly. Know? Later in his career. So whether he was doing it intentionally or not, I think it is kind of a powerful message that then unfortunately like gets ripped away from her. You know what? And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because I feel like all of this is thematically relevant to this transformation that is occurring. Right. And he keeps talking about the flesh. Right. And um, the power of it, but also its power over us. It's yeah. very important. So there's also a deleted scene that I was going to mention. It was it was originally shown in some of the first screenings, but it's the it's the monkey cat scene, scene was shot. Uh, they made that? Yeah, they made that shot. And then they had the character beat it to death. And wow. that was what rubbed audiences the wrong way. And they pulled it because <laughs> it was they were like, once he beats this animal to death, people are no longer invested in his journey. They, they're like, right. fuck this guy. They, they don't care about the fact that he's... It was pulled. hard, honestly, to feel that way after he turned that baboon inside out that was pretty pretty uh, fucking rough when that happens who the fuck has access to baboons like that i don't know man but like that bloody hand on the in the glass and then he opens it up and it's this quivering squealing mass and that's the idea of it's still alive and like feeling pain Mm. it's horrific man 
And then the idea that Gina Davis like is later on sleeping with him. <laughs> I yeah. think they have sex that night. Um, fucked up, man. Yeah, I don't think I'd be in the mood. Let's just say that. This also, and I don't want to spoil anything, but this brought um, Nope to mind for me because using primates in your films, uh, known to be very dangerous and and like a, a type of animal that are hard to control. Yeah, it was like jumping on Goldblum yeah. and holding him and stuff. Supposedly, according to Cronenberg and the, the animal trainer, this is their reasoning and the way that they're able to justify this. Goldblum was able to like overpower this baboon and it was like so big and imposing and working out and stuff. And so the baboon like respected him because of uh-huh. that. And but other than that, the monkey was like out, out, out of its mind, like it would just jump around. It wasn't it under control very well, but they still got like certain things done that they needed to. And like if you've seen Nope, it just like not it's nope. it's one of those things that like you just don't do this, man. Like ch- chimpanzees. This isn't a chimpanzee, but they're known to rip faces. Not off. a chimpanzee. They are incredibly dangerous. Yeah, well, they're known. They'll like, rip your fucking dick off. Exactly. And this is so this is a film that like you're not doing this these days. People aren't you're not you're not using like a baboon for a scene like this. Maybe you CG it or whatever. You, you I don't know. Maybe some people could, but doesn't seem worth it. I assume this was like a, a, a baboon that had been used, you know, and is oh, like sure, was highly trained, trained and yeah. all that. But even so that, you know, yeah, doesn't doesn't necessarily always matter. I do, I do kind of like the idea of Goldblum's just like able to just (laughs) his magnetism animal magnetism yeah he's like he's because he like at one point is like come here and it like hops up and gives him a hug and i was like damn that looked real yep and it was (laughs) and and apparently that's like why he built that relationship and he was like so jacked and imposing he's like six four he's like a really tall guy yeah he's tall there's there's that uh (laughs) moving moving through the film some we get did we fully talk about how fucking awful the boss is do we need to do we need to mention him anymore He's so bad, man. Super toxic, super, just like a, a detestable human being. Yeah, and he's like leveling, like he keeps using his position of power in her life again and again to like stay in her life. He he won't give back the key. He makes really off-putting comments. Like at one point, she's like worried about dying and he's like, can I get, can I get, uh, you know, the can rights I get your to body? your body or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Like, the rights the to your body. Like what the fuck was that comment? And she, like she kept telling him off, but like not enough. You know what I mean? Like, this again kind of makes me think of like that, that shock jock kind of situation where like he's saying a bunch of outlandish, crazy shit just for the sake of saying it. Uh, at least having it because Cronenberg wrote the dialogue, so you know yeah. it's 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 supposed to be a horrible character. Yeah, and it, it's like I think Cronenberg wants us to feel conflicted about him, right? And so like when he gets his fucking hand melted, part of us is kind of like this guy does deserve it because he's so goddamn awful. You know, even our main character, we come to dislike and, and borderline hate. And then like when he's dying at the end, you don't you're like, yeah, he should die here. This is, you know, it makes sense for the story. Yeah. There was also uh, the, the the funny sequence of uh, the gymnastics. Yeah. Clearly not Jeff Goldblum. No, but it was, you know, but it was cool. Right. And they got a guy who kind of looked like him, I guess. Um, can you imagine being able to do shit like that? No, it's amazing. No, not, no, not like that. man. Like that chair sequence. Holy yeah, shit. Incredible. So. When you're when you're shooting something like this too, you have to like hide the face as much as you can. But ultimately, they're flipping around and you can see their face. But I was just thinking about like the techniques employed to to make that work enough to where because there's a there's a version of this that all of us have seen in a worse movie where like we get a clear shot of the face and it's That's clearly true. not. But they did a good job of like hiding it and yeah. shooting around it. It's and, only like, because I like know how movies are made that I'm like, that's clearly a stunt man. But they did a good job hiding it. But this this scene brought br- like the stunt work made me think that I'm like, damn, like you got to you have to really be meticulous when you're shooting something like this. They got a lot of coverage, obviously, 
of many different shots of this. And I actually read that they shot so much that these these even these people who were in peak physical condition and are clearly like uh, gymnasts and acrobats, yeah. they were like completely worn out by the end of it because they're not used to having to do it quite so much because for filming, it's like, all right, we need to do it, you know, yeah. again. What about again, the scene again. where he's running up the stairs carrying a woman? Like a lot of that, it was like actually him and you could tell, but then a couple of times they were like, they were doing some tricks. And I'm like, yeah, because I don't know how much you could do that, man. That's really hard. Plus dangerous. Like you could hurt easily yourself. trip and hurt yourself really badly. And another person that you're carrying. Um, but yeah, man, I just imagine being that gymnast and being able to just do that. I like I, that chair was probably nailed down or something, but like I do that every fucking morning. Just <laughs> it's my part of my wake up because like sure. you see it and you're like, oh my god, that's other inhuman almost. But there are people who could do it. Sure, I mean that, and that like is something that I think a, a lot of gymnasts can probably do that. But well, uh, maybe. Well, and, and like, you know, certain body types are built for that kind of thing. Yeah. But I was thinking about like you saying this made me think about people who were like contortionists and things like that. that yeah. really push it to where like it seems totally inhuman. Yeah. Where like no one can do that other than like one or two people. It's like the scene from The Exorcist where that one uh, contortionist runs down the stairs upside down, right? Yeah. There are some pretty funny like very 80s scenes where like Goldblum like goes to the bar with his shirt open and he's like arm wrestling and like yeah, I <laughs> get the girl like, if I beat you yeah yeah just like really like macho 80s stuff compound that, fracture of the wrist comes out of fucking nowhere which is like a really weird spot for your arm to break in an arm wrestling match um but yeah it's grody I wasn't expecting it to be so uh fucking graphic but it, it goes there yeah. And then we get to the point where he's like he's like puking on donuts and stuff and yeah. like that whole sequence with the girl he picks up is very uncomfortable, man, right? Like he brings her back and he's like trying to force her to like go through the teleporter. Yeah. Again, he becomes like just as bad as the boss, if not worse. Oh yeah, know? totally. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he becomes like a t the type of character where you're like, we were on your side and then and, and it's funny too cuz I I feel like there's people that would make the argument that like the fly DNA, obviously, was what's changing him, or is this his true nature? That's what his underneath? whole politics statement was about, about how he could feel himself becoming more brutal and how flies don't care about people. And they just but do we not think that he had this d deep within him as well, or do we think it's well? Like, you I think know? you could you could say maybe we all do is maybe what Cronenberg's right. getting at. We all have like an animal side to us, and that's what the boss sort of represents with his bullshit he's doing. I don't know. It's a dark way of looking at life, but I, I can see the point you know that maybe he's trying to make why doesn't gina davis say anything in that scene where she sees him like fucking doing all the gymnast shit i was so like, it was weird that like she watches it occur yeah she was just into and it and then she doesn't she doesn't say anything she just loved it i feel like you would comment on that <laughs> yeah well i guess she hasn't really known him that long yeah at that point. maybe she's like oh fuck i didn't realize he could do this shit yeah he's like this guy <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the movie's an hour and a half, so I would give it credit for, like, not overstaying its welcome. We get the first half, like I said, which is pretty unassuming, kind of love story. They really build that well so that the heartbreak comes later. Uh, you get to the start of the transformation. He starts to be kind of a dick. And then, like, the last third or so is, like, the transformation. And then, like, he's he's running around. He's, like, and I kind of thought for for a little bit that, maybe he would just get loose, like just be like out in the streets of New York or wherever they're supposed to be um, terrorizing people. Yeah. Maybe he's jumping from rooftop to rooftop at one point, it seems like. So there's, again, like, I feel like there's like almost a superhero commentary a little bit here. Spider-Man probably specifically, you know, the idea of being mixed with an arachnid. They're like, you want to be mixed with a, with, with something like that? Well, <laughs> and, and I mean, if we're going to make all these references to horror and, and like people moving on from that, Sam Raimi is another really notable, really gruesome and gory 
director who then goes on to to direct bigger things and Cronenberg DNA probably built in there as well, just like Peter yeah. Jackson, I'm sure. Um, totally, man. What about the Flesh Museum? <laughs> the museum yeah. of the Natural History Museum of Brundle or something he calls it. Yeah. He's got all his little bits and bobs <laughs> hidden away in the the mirror. I love that the the fly creature maintains like the the Jeff Goldblum mannerisms and and like charm in ways even through the transformation. It's, it's also you could say like not even just the Goldblum but like Brundle the the character himself is is the scientist who believes that he's like doing stuff that is going to be of note and they're going to be of like people are going to one day care about and like he's still clearly thinking of this whole transformation through that angle of like this is really important and I'm I'm trying to like kind of document it but as he's losing his losing himself to the fly you, you would argue he's he doesn't see how ridiculous and gross it all is and how like no one's going to do that <laughs> man what was like what was the grossest scene to you that's a, that's a question what was the one yeah. that got you the most the nails yeah. coming off and then the squirting i think that might have been it for me but i don't know i have to think about it it's i don't know for me that it's the bad. pukey stuff it's the, the stuff coming out of the mouth yeah and then so there's a really tough part to watch where Gina Davis' character, uh, Ronnie, she like she comes to the apartment and she's breaking down because she's realizing he's not the same and all this stuff. And he like doesn't want her to come near him. But then she like his ear falls off. That's oh, fucking disgusting. Yeah. And then she like goes and hugs him and stuff. She like, goes and hugs him. That That's really gross. Like all I was like, good, I, I honestly wrote down like good for her for being able to do that. I yeah. don't know if I could do it, man. His ears falling off. Like he's got like he's like wet. Everything's like wet and slimy. And totally uh, that that was a pretty disgusting scene. And then just like I said, puking on the donut, puking on anything was yeah. was definitely the thing for me. She'd seen him do that already, I think, at that point, too, and was still like giving him the hug and stuff like, oh. What, uh, and then like, the, you know, you said the, the fingers, but also the teeth. I know people have like a thing for teeth when teeth are falling. Oh, out. yeah. When the teeth start coming out and they're all like weird looking already at a certain point. Like that's yeah. all super gross, man. So I'd say pukey stuff for me. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I'll give it to you. Worst part. And you said so for you, it's the fingernails and the squirt. I think and stuff. it might have been. I mean, honestly, when he when he rips out of the body, that's really fucking gross. But it's almost so over the top, whereas like. The fingernails coming off and that is like... It's less human, right? Like uh, the transformation is like it's a monster at that point, whereas like the fingernails is something we can relate to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the final sequence, man. So he's he's he goes and he get, grabs Gina Davis. Uh, what did you say her character's name was? Ronnie. He grabs her, smashes through the window, steals her from the, from the I guess, hospital um, and takes her back. And then the boss comes with his like really bizarre, like he shows up with a case... And he pulls out this like double barrel shotgun and it's like lovingly put together and assembled. And then like, wouldn't you want to have your uh, fucking shotgun assembled before you walked into the layer of the thing? Yeah. You, you know? think, yeah. <laughs> and then he gets jumped after he puts the gun together. It was also weird because it was a double barrel. I guess he might have shot one barrel and then and then she shot the other later. But I was like, uh, you know, it's a good thing he didn't accidentally shoot both barrels or she would have been out of luck. So it's yeah. only got two shots in that, and then you got to reload. I don't know. For me, man, if I'm going into like a hostile environment, it's a horror movie. Like I'm gonna have something that I can shoot more than twice. Exactly, hey. and uh, ready to go before I walk into it. <laughs> not to not get in there and then put assemble my gun, man. So I, I he shoots the tubes, which I thought was you know was clever. And then I wrote down last like I can't believe this motherfucker is saving the day right now. Like I hate this guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you it's know? the worst. And then the. Um, the final moment where he gets t transported again and then he gets integrated with the like telepod itself. Oh yeah, that's cool. And then he comes out and he's like part machine now. Yeah. And like all fucked up and and he's and he's, you know, again, still alive. He's kind of become like basically what the baboon was. Um and he's kind of coming towards her and 
grabs the gun and like indicates that he wants her to kill him, which is goes back to the original short story in that sense. And she says, no, I can't. And I was like, all right, um, I don't know what other evidence you need. He just wanted to integrate you into his own fucking hideous body. I think I'd be ready to pull the trigger at that point, personally. But he can do, like, flips and stuff. Like, Not anymore. Now yeah. he just crawls on the ground. And... <laughs> he could do I mean, at this point, she's like, no, I can't. <laughs> she does end up doing it, but, like, come on. You got to do it here, yeah. <laughs> um, so a couple of things I wanted to know as we're wrapping up, too. Um, Cronenberg uh, cameoed as the gynecologist. I don't know if you realize Oh, that, that was him? Yep. Interesting. That was him. Wait, 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 in the dream, maybe? Probably not the one they went and talked to in the office. Or is that the same guy? Maybe it's the same guy. I guess yeah, I don't I'm know. Sure. I, I also wanted to know some of the Howard Shore stuff. Like, uh, it, So it's like Howard Shore, David Cronenberg, and Mel Brooks. And they're like remembering a story where Mel Brooks was questioning certain moments where, because I don't, did you, was the score rec- like notable to you? As it or was it kind of like? Yeah, it's kind of. I'd say it was kind of background. There were moments, maybe, but I think Mel Brooks was was hearing certain moments, and it was like too big and too epic at times. Like the music is crescendoing as as Brundle's walking down the street, saying, "Quote the the guy is just walking down the street," and then Cronenberg replies, "No, Mel, the guy is about to meet his destiny." So I thought that was an interesting way to to like kind of see where the the filmmaker was meeting the composer and, and what they were trying to convey in that way. There were these high synths that would come in and out. They were in the intro. Um, I remember them accenting certain scenes. So like, yeah, it is the more I think about it, like there are moments that are standing out to me, you know, for sure. Howard Shore scored Lord of the Rings. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and part of this is because Peter Jackson was a fan of, of Cronenberg's work while the epic adventure of Lord of the Rings is very different from Cronenberg's horror. Like this is why I brought up that sort of rising crescendo and that kind of thing in a movie that seemed like it didn't necessarily fit. But Jackson saw Shelob's lair as horror with, with an adventure and told Shore to make it sound like this film. Like a lot uh, of those orcs are pretty hideous, almost like fly monsters. (laughs) The eerie strings on the score can be heard at the climax of this film just says Brundle is about to vomit on his face, and it's similar to what you can hear in Shelob's Lair. So the connective tissue of the fly and Shelob's Lair and Lord of the Rings. I like it, man. All right, I think we're ready. If you are, um, I think it's time to cast our vote on what, what is the better version of the story. So I'm going to take the film. You know, there's just so much, so much weight given, at least in my opinion, to the legacy of the story through the film. You have the the effects. You have the, the Goldblum performance sort of solidifying himself as as Jeff Goldblum, the eccentric, what did we say earlier? He's like an eccentric nerd and also like a suave sort of ladies you know, man, yeah, heartthrob. Uh, he is definitely you know, and you see what's going to become Ian Malcolm in, yeah. in Jurassic Park in, in this character. Some absolutely. Uh, I, I so Jeff Goldblum iconic performance. I actually like Gina Davis quite a bit in this role. You know, she she has some of her agency taken out. She sticks by him a little bit more, especially more than I think I would. You know what I mean? Like she she keeps. She continues to feel pity for him, even though he continues to do some pretty wild shit. Um, and she kind of wants to save him. And, you know, rec- she she recognizes the Brundle and the Brundle fly for longer than I think most of us would. Yeah, I just I'm a fan of her as a performer. So so that's notable. And then Cronenberg's style and this body horror and the way that he I like any filmmaker who's this auteur, right? Anyone who can who can differentiate themselves where you can basically know right away 
based on stylistic choices and like directorial trademarks, things that like you can look at and see are this person. So I'm a fan of people being unique, creative directors in that way. So, you know, I always remember it for that. And then, you know, you get Howard Shore scoring this film and, and like uh, the way that it, it kind of approaches this story, uh, as I said, like lulls you into the sense of security and then just like comes home with it slams the hammer down and it, and it gives you this some experience. of the most insane shit you'll see in a movie <laughs> yeah especially for the time period too like it was revolutionary for the time you know no, nobody else was doing it and i felt like the you know while i did like the original material he took it to a level that was like things people will reference forever it's it's one of those kind of like watershed moments in filmmaking where like people look back at the fly and they're like oh yeah that and like the thing there are a few like this that that really defined horror of that that generation so i i love that we can shout out an, a a writer like george langelin who ha- clearly didn't have the storied career that many other classic uh, authors have interesting to read about his you know fighting in the war and being a spy and like having surgery and like all that stuff it's really fascinating um, and I enjoyed the story. I, you know, I thought it actually held up pretty well other than some dated gender stuff. Um, I liked the style it was written in. Um, so, you know, all props to the story. But, yeah, I agree. For all the reasons you said, it's the movie uh, that's the most iconic version of the story. It's the one that made the fly a thing that we're talking about today um, because that's that's where the legacy is now. Um, and as much as it's still not, like, going to be one of my favorite movies, like, I, I, you know, I enjoyed it and I appreciate it. Uh, for what it is. Oh, another thing I just randomly thought of, uh, his sort of like mania he gets after he teleports and how he thinks he's like superhuman, but then like um, clearly it is deteriorating his health. It made me think of drug addiction in some ways, right? Like especially like uppers like cocaine or something at the time. Mm, like yeah. people who like think that it's, you know, made them like the next level. And then also the way he's like, you're a drag and he like leaves her and like goes off to find someone who's going to be okay with how he is now. He wants them to join him in this. That that could also, I feel like, be a metaphor for drug addiction in some way. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and I'm curious what a Wallace-directed Fly 2 would look like and what the original is like and the influence of the original film. So if you'd like to hear those, I'm sure we'll cover them for bonus bonus episodes here very soon, uh, which you can check out on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we do adaptation adjacent, anything we couldn't cover for... Uh, the original material or, or for the main feed here, we, we usually address that in, in bonus content. Yeah, let us know if that's something you want to hear about. Um, another way to support this podcast is to leave us a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Um, we just got a new one recently that made me smile. So I always love to see them and I share them on our social media when they come up. So yeah, we'd love that. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film We're also on TikTok and YouTube. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube and like the video, do all those things. All right, man. So I think all that's left to do is to announce our next project, which is one that we've been talking about for a while now, um, has been, has been uh, a movie that I keep seeing people reference and talk about that I haven't seen yet. And that's going to be All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, and a, a classic of literature that I that I somehow missed when I was in school. I don't know about you. Have you ever read that book? Or no, I've never read it. But you know, the film the film coming out and being nominated for best international film. I think it won for best international film and being nominated for best picture. It won for best cinematography. The the fact that I haven't seen this film yet is just due to the fact that we're covering it for the podcast and I knew we were going to. So this is one that I've been uh, I've been really uh, anxious to get to. So stay tuned for that. We will be covering the book first in its in a uh, standalone episode, and then we'll get onto the film. All right, that's gonna be it for the fly. Until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.